Hello and welcome to episode number eight of European UFOs. I'm your host Sebastian and if you liked this episode then please make sure to subscribe and leave a review, it really helps. Today we're delving into the intriguing world of Swedish UFOs, focusing on two compelling topics. Firstly, we'll venture into the archives for The Unexplained, a huge and unique archive of historical records dealing with UFOs and related phenomena. Joining us in this exploration is Klaus Swan, a seasoned investigator actively researching UFOs since the 1970s. With nearly 30 books to his name, Klaus is not only an esteemed author, but also a frequent expert on Swedish radio and TV. As the international director of UFO Sweden and chairman for Archives for the Unexplained, Klaus brings a wealth of knowledge to our conversation. Our journey then takes us to the mysterious ghost rockets phenomenon as Klaus recounts his experiences from two expeditions investigating a landing and or crash site in Sweden's isolated expanses. These ventures provide a unique perspective on the challenges and findings of UFO fieldwork in this part of the world. So, join us as we explore the archives for the unexplained and journey through the remote corners of Sweden in search of UFO mysteries. As usual, the unknown awaits, and who knows what discoveries may lie ahead. Hi, Klaas. Very nice to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, hi, Sebastian. It's nice and cold and wintry in Stockholm, so yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, before before we started, you already told me that you had the pleasure of shoveling some snow <laughs> at your at your house. Yeah, we've been spared this so far in in Berlin, but um, yeah, well, I've I've caught COVID instead, so that's also my chore for for the week. Yeah, but um, listen, very very good to have you on. Um, I was asked this, my guests, so could you perhaps elaborate um, a bit on who you are and how you got into um, researching and exploring the phenomenon, as it is called these days? Well, yeah, I'm a journalist as a profession. Since 1978, uh, I have just uh, retired a couple of months ago, after 45 years as a professional journalist with uh, Sweden's largest uh, newspaper, Dagens Nyheter. I started to get interested in UFOs around 1968-69, maybe, uh, collecting newspaper clippings and uh, and uh, asking my mother and father to buy me books about astronomy and eventually about UFOs. But in 1974, when I was 16 years of age, I uh, I started my own UFO society in my hometown of Mariestad, and I also uh, attended UFO Sweden, the nationwide uh, research organization, which I am now a chairman of. So uh, I've been interested for quite a while. It's uh, 50 years next year of uh, active research, which is uh, quite interesting because I've seen quite a lot coming and going. and. <laughs> And, you know, there are scares and flaps and uh, highlights of interest and uh, things are coming and going up and down and it's returning in different packages, I should say. Yeah, I think that's that's um, there's a lot of truth to that, especially to the uh, UFO phenomenon. I think it comes in different guises, but it always reappears. And, um, yeah, that's definitely, um, I think, part, part and 
uh, part of the phenomenon. Um, when you um, founded your own UFO society, was that um, triggered by a flap? Because um, I'm just thinking of the 1970s, lots of things were going on in the United States during that era in terms of UFOs. Was there, were there similar developments in Sweden or um, was this just out of general curiosity for, for the topic? Yeah, it was uh, more like uh, a general curiosity. I have read about UFOs for quite a few years at that point. But in 1974, I decided that I should try to make a difference. Um, so me and, and a couple of friends, uh, not a single female, all, all men, <laughs> boys, I should say, at that time, decided to go out and investigate the uh, UFO cases that were happening around the area we were living in. So since no one of us had a driver's license, my father drove us around and we knocked doors and we came there with our cameras and tape recorders and uh, forms to fill out, uh, asking people what they have seen and trying to, to, to find a solution to it. We were quite good at it uh, at that time. And I think you for Sweden is still very good at finding solutions. But in all that, we saw that there was stories, observations that were very, very hard to find a decent solution to. And uh, that is my point of view even today, that there is a very, very small percentage of all those observations that are worth further study. But most of the things that are coming into to you for Sweden's uh, report center are quite easy to explain. Yeah, I think it's, um, you always hear statistics like it's, over 90% that have a mundane explanation and, you know, the rest is worth further exploration. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see that that's um, also the case in, um, in Scandinavia. Um, how were UFOs back then reported? So I'm just imagining you and your group of friends um, being carved around by, by your dad or by your parents. Um, how, how back then in the 1970s, um, where, where you made aware of UFO cases? Was this reported by the media? or? Yeah, it was very much in the newspapers, very seldom on radio, and uh, very, very seldom on TV. But the newspapers were reporting uh, uh, local UFO observations. And that is quite different from today, because today uh, the local newspapers nearly never reports sightings anymore. They are writing articles about UFOs from time to time, but more uh, like a broader context and um, not what people have seen in the skies. But in the 70s, there were loads of them. So it was quite easy to, to find people who had seen things. And in 1978, when I turned a journalist full-time, I uh, was able to, to write quite a lot about UFO sightings myself as a professional journalist as well. That's, uh, especially from where we are today, I mean, I think we've more or less come back full circle because it's not a topic anymore that, that's um, been, or that is ostracized to the same extent that it perhaps was. But it's very intriguing to hear that in the 1970s, you could actually do professional journalistic work about the phenomenon and then I'm I'm just wondering and I'm curious how is in your opinion having worked on this for so many years um, how has the um, 
media outlook on on this topic shifted over the years? Are there general trends or? Yeah. I mean, in the 1980s, uh, there were quite a lot of articles as well. But in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, um, the cable TV networks came to Sweden. And uh, and suddenly I was sitting in every sofa on, on every channel talking about UFOs um, because that was something that v- the viewers really wanted to, to see and listen to. So that was really something that changed the field uh loads of people were suddenly interested in different aspects of ufos when when tv broadcasted so many programs about them uh, but also the new age uh, view on, on ufos uh, which we haven't seen in the early 80s were very prominent in the late 80s and early 90s and you could see that it was during maybe all of the 90s. Uh, nowadays, the, the, the New Age view is not very much covered in, in the press anymore and not on TV. But at that time, I think more than half of the, new, of the programs on Swedish TV that discussed UFOs were more like uh, New Age discussions than, than uh, research about UFOs. So by New Age... I, I, I presume you mean um, uh, individuals referring to their space, brothers, etc., and kind of giving it a more kind of spiritual occult twist, or yeah, yeah, okay, inner, inner experiences, uh, uh, star travels, and uh, well, uh, not the hardcore observations that we were trying to to investigate. Mm-hmm. And um, this is kind of getting ahead a bit, but I think it's it's pertinent now. Um, so, have there been many kind of um, encounters of uh, between these beings and and individuals, so um, close encounters, so to speak, or um, is this kind of a rare phenomenon? Because I think for this kind of new age twist or, of interpretation, you um, probably have this as a precondition or also whether many people are reported um, kind of close contact scenarios. Well, if we look at the people uh, telling stories about being abducted, which I do not call New Age. Um, I mean, when I'm talking about New Age, I mean mm-hmm. inner experiences more. Mm-hmm. But when people are telling about being abducted from their, their bedrooms or meeting entities, things like that, uh, we were trying to investigate uh, those reports. But they are very, very few in Sweden, I should say. Compared to the US, uh, there is really just a fraction of them being reported here in Sweden. So they never really were a big part of the UFO uh, phenomena in Sweden. Um, not ma- not many books were were published about it either. Because most of the books that I read in the 1970s and the 1980s were more about ETs, spacecrafts, and not very much about entities or meeting with entities, but just observations of different crafts, things like that. All right. So there's not this kind of negative, per se, negative connotation of having experienced the um, phenomenon, because I think, you know, in the US with, with Liz Reeves' book and so on, it's become 
couched in these quite quite negative terms of something that's involuntary, forceful, and um, violent. Um, but it's interesting to hear that um, in Sweden um, they are very rare these sorts of encounters, and perhaps also not um, cast in these terms. So I think that's that's no, quite interesting. No, I should say they are not cast in those terms. But in the 1960s, the late 1960s, there were some uh, some uh, people who claimed contact with Space Brothers and uh, claimed to be able to foresee when when the UFOs were to be seen in the skies or flying saucers, I should say, because they were sure that those were visitors from other planets. Um, and that was just the nuts and bolts guys, really. Uh, but uh, in the 90s, especially in the 90s, the nuts and bolts were not that prominent anymore, and the more new age, new agey interpretations were the more discussed in the media, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of nuts and bolts, because we already touched on what the um, media outlook on on this topic is or was in Sweden, um, was there any? official position on the part of the military um, towards UFOs in the time you've worked on this on this issue? Or? Yeah, it's uh, we must go back in time, really, to, to get this um, mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. properly. We should start in the 1930s with, with uh, the Ghost Flyer. And um, the Ghost Flyer was uh, two different huge waves of observations in Sweden when people saw what they thought were strange aircraft or really the lights from those aircrafts in the sky. And the military was, of course, very much interested in that. They thought it could be be Russians spying. Um, And when I looked through all of those observations, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds from the 1930s, I could see that nearly 99% of all of them were just specks of lights in the sky. Very few described crafts or aircrafts or whatever you want to call them. So um, it was much much of a scare, really. Not very much of a UFO wave, I should say. That came in, in 1946. And I think we will discuss that later on, but that was called the ghost rockets. And the military were very, very much interested in the ghost rockets. And mm-hmm. that continued it continued into the 1950s. Because there was a special branch of the military just working with UFO cases during the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. No, no, fascinating. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into the um, the ghost rockets because it's one of those hallmarks of, of Scandinavian um, UFO, um, ufology. And I think something that's really not well known and something I, I did a bit of reading on to familiarize myself are the, um, you just mentioned it, the ghost flies from the 1930s. And um, so you mentioned there were specks of light. Can we imagine them as orbs, kind of luminous phenomena floating across the sky, like the Hestalen phenomena, for instance? Or um, no, is it... not really. Not really compared to Hestalen. Uh, uh, more more lights in the sky, not coming from the ground as they are in Hestalen. They are coming from the mm-hmm. ground, going upwards. Uh, they, those were just flying. It could have been. Anything from Venus to ordinary aircrafts, 
um, I should say. I, I talked to a lot of people involved in the 1930s investigations, and uh, they were really trying to pinpoint who was behind those uh, intrusions over, over Swedish airspace. But they were never able to do that because they very, very seldom saw anything tangible. So it was lights in the sky, stars, planets, maybe aircraft from time to time. But um, the ghost rockets were very different from that. They were daylight observations, um, many of them, very much describing crafts, uh, sun shining in, on the on the hull, and they could see them crashing and could hear them. So um, the ghost flyer and the ghost rockets are very different from each other. Are the ghost flyers from the 1930s overall the earliest documented evidence of what you would now nowadays call a UFO, or are there events predating this in in Sweden? Yeah, there are events predating that, of course. When you look through old Swedish magazines and newspapers, you can find a lot of observations of mostly strange lights. Very, very few describing crafts or objects. I should say 99% of what you are finding in the 1800s and 1700s newspapers are, are lights in the sky or Strange behaving lights very, very near the ground as well. Very much uh, like the ball lightning phenomenon in many ways, but sometimes stranger. Yeah, But uh, not really what you call UFOs today. Yeah. Just to take up the, um, before we get more into the um, archives for the unexplained visit, which is a big topic, um, we touched on the... Um, media outlook on UFOs and how it got cast partly into this um, more spiritual New Age um, um, issue. Um, and we talked about the military in the 1930s, and we're going to talk about ghost rockets. What is the um, military's position these days, especially after 2017 in Sweden? Has there been any official announcement or is this a topic they're actively pursuing or well what what did happen after the 1950s and 60s was that in 1965 uh, the defense staff in Sweden decided that they were not to investigate UFOs anymore they couldn't see any military significance and not a threat uh, and at that point they had put lots of time into this lots of personnel lots of money lots of time but in '65, they turned this over to the defense research uh, facility that are still today receiving reports from the public, but they are not doing any investigations anymore. But in between '65 and up until 2000 something, uh, there were people at the National Defense Research Institute um, working on UFOs, but on their free time. Uh, they had no, no money, really. They were just uh, the one, if you call them, you were transferred to this guy or, or, or this uh, girl. Um, today, they are not very much interested in this anymore. They refer the reports to you for Sweden, to our organization. They are not doing any research. 
they have not uh, said anything anything public um, except two interviews. I made one interview with a high-ranking officer in Sweden, and he told me that uh, we are not very much interested in this anymore. Our our air crews. They are not experiencing anything that they couldn't understand. So if you ask the Swedish military, there are no UFOs over Sweden at all. But looking back into the files, we can see that there have been loads of of reports from military aircrews and from other military men during the, the years. And I, I would very much doubt that it has stopped suddenly. I think they're still seeing things that they don't understand, but maybe they don't want to tell because that's a sign of weakness, saying that they don't know what is flying over Sweden, of course. So it's kind of a difference between what's happening behind the scenes and what's portrayed to the public in interviews, etc. Got it. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it seems to be the case uh, with all my other guests from from europe um i think the general uh red threat here is that there isn't often an interest in the ufo topic but um it's definitely not on the same level as as in the uh, the us on on the government side and um perhaps you know perhaps that may also be due to a data bias in the us through FOIA requests and so on we know that there has been an active interest and in, uh, you know the government saying one thing and um is different from from what they're actually doing behind the scenes so that's um but I think might be just down to um, a more complete picture of the data in the US. Um, speaking of data, um, you have done a very extraordinary job. I mean, I'm still uh, just um, flabbergasted by this. Um, a huge library archive um, resource um, for UFO um, research in, um, in in Scandinavia. It's unique. And um, could you give us an overview of the archives for the unexplained? Because I think it's really mind-boggling what you've managed to do over the last decades there. Yeah, it, it is. It really is. We started in 1973 uh, with just a bookshelf, really, a couple of hundreds of books. And today we have around 700 square meters and uh, 4,200 meters of shelf capacity filled more than filled <clears throat> with uh, books, UFO reports, uh, paraphernalia, films, pictures, tape recordings, anything connected to the unknown, really. At the beginning, we were called uh, archives for UFO research. But uh, during the years, we realized that UFOs are so interconnected with other topics and uh, strange uh, phenomena that uh, we couldn't really distinguish and just focus on, on UFOs. So nowadays we, we have a paranormal archive, a fortune archive, with uh, lots of mysteries, uh, unsolved enigmas, and unsolved uh, uh, natural phenomena. <clears throat> it's very broad. I think we have around 60,000 books in our libraries. We have several different libraries. And... Uh, more than a million newspaper clippings, hundreds of thousands of magazines. Uh, it's very hard to give give a figure. It's a, it's a huge 
intake all the time because I traveled to different countries trying to save files from being lost. I went to Germany earlier this year, uh, giving a speech and also uh, collecting huge uh, library, which we sent back to Sweden, several thousand of books, mostly in German. Uh, we also saved from Virginia earlier this year more than 3,500 books on the paranormal, which was a really, really fantastic uh, contribution. Uh, and at this point, we are, we are full, so we are looking for new premises. Uh, lots of people are coming to us, uh, sitting there, doing their research, people from all around the world. But we also have this download page. You can download for free uh, magazines and, and uh, files. It's tens and tens of thousands. Uh, and we have a huge uh, electronic file, of course, that are behind a wall with sensitive information like uh, people's names and addresses on UFO reports that we cannot make public. But we can let the researchers come and look at and do their research on, on, on the AFU. But at this point, we are um, trying to find a new premises, uh, which is larger and more adjusted to, to our, our needs, really, uh, because we can see no stopping in this. So many files are still out there that need to be saved. And I, I go to Britain every year and bring back around 2,200 kilos every year for more than 20 years, 25, I should say. Wow. Um, is, is, is this material from private donations, or how do you acquire it? It's from private investigators, from uh, UFO societies that has folded, maybe. Uh, we saved a 50-year-old uh, UFO society's archive from Spain a couple of years ago. We saved uh, the Flying Saucer Reviews full archive from Britain a couple of years ago. We saved uh, the oldest, as far as we know, UFO Paranormal Society's files from Eureka in California. The Borderland Science Research Association started in the 1940s. So I went to Eureka and packed it, and, and then we sent it back to Sweden. And what we do is that we are ordering everything into acid-free boxes. We are cataloging and we are scanning. But, of course, we are sitting under this avalanche of material coming in all the time. So we have not the time to, to scan as much as we want. But the aim for AFU is, one, to make available good information for researchers, and two, to preserve it for posterity. And, uh, I mean, it costs a lot of money to do this. We do this from our own pockets, really. We are around 50, 55 people putting money into this every month. And most of them are from Sweden. I think only two of them are from other countries than Sweden. But uh, the users are from all over the world. So we hope that other people around the world can see the benefit of this and want to help us to make this even better and more accessible for the future. Uh, because we are not for ourselves. We are doing this for, for you, for all the people out there interested and for all the researchers interested.
Yeah, thank, thanks for this overview. And I think it's even more impressive what you managed to achieve uh, without any direct sources of, of public funding, if I understood this this correctly. So it's kind of a private enterprise, so to speak. Um, that That is really amazing. Do you have permanent staff or how do you manage to upkeep all of this? Yeah, we have um, four or five people working for free. Uh, volunteers just interested nearly every day we have a couple of people that are are paid for through the uh, employment agency and we pay a part of their salary so i should say every day there are maybe eight or ten people working at afu and we also have this uh, shop afu shop where you can buy surplus material and uh, we are selling for around 2,000 to 3,000 euros every month uh, because every third copy of a book we are having, we are selling. So two copies we are keeping and the third one we, we are, are selling. And we also sell magazines, of course, when we are surplus magazines. So that's a very important thing of what we are doing to, to, to help people to acquire things that are very, very hard to find. And um, having having achieved this this level of coverage on on the UFO and um, related subjects, have you had any uh, contact with notable researchers? Um, and I'm thinking especially of researchers that work on um, archival and database projects like Jacques Vallée or John Greenwald, for instance. Have they been in touch? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jacques Vallée is a good friend of ours, and. Uh... Other researchers have been visiting us, like uh, Hilary Evans, uh, the late Hilary yeah. Evans, mm-hmm. who was one of the greatest researchers in, in Britain for many years. When he passed away, or before, he donated all of his files and his, uh, his library to us. So I went there and we packed for a week a full uh, large lorry and sent it back to Sweden. And uh, we have historians from the U.S. coming over, sitting, doing their research. We have quite many many folklorists coming to us, uh, researchers from Europe and Sweden. A couple of years ago, a guy from Japan flew in for three days from Tokyo. He was sitting three days just looking at our Japanese archive. (laughs) And uh, in the 90s, I went to Moscow and... uh, saved a copy of the KGB files and a lot of other stuff. Uh, So we are trying to find things all over the world, and we have a cooperation with other archives because there are archives around the world, uh, local archives, just focusing on on their countries. We are focusing focusing on all the world. That's the difference. AFU is uh, a world heritage, really. Um, something I'm very interested in is the um, academic study of, of the phenomenon. And given that you have um, created this archive, you're probably able to give an overview of what types of research questions people visiting your archive actually bring to the table. Would you be able to see a red thread there to categorize it? For instance, are there mainly nuts and bolts type of research questions or... Are there 
people from religious studies, like for instance Diana Pasolka, researching the kind of more um, ideational background of the UFO phenomenon. So I'd just be interested what the current trends are you see in, in research on the topic. Yeah, the trends are quite, um, uh, I should say, pointed towards uh, beliefs, uh, religious beliefs, um, folklore, things like that. I should say maybe nine out of ten visitors we have are looking into that. Very few with uh, nuts and bolts background and uh, very few physicists like... uh, uh, researchers into astronomical mysteries. We have loads of them. I mean, we have so much of that. But that kind of researchers we, we are seeing very, very, very seldom, uh, which is very, very sad, really, because um, I think they should take a look at what we have. Not only uh, the belief systems are, are of interest, of course. Uh, so um, I invite people from every... every uh, every uh, scientific point of view really to come to us and ask for for information and of course a lot of people are just interested we got loads of emails from private interested people asking for things asking for observations or what's happened on a certain date they are looking for um, cooperation with us in, in different projects and we do have cooperation with the New York-based uh, company Enigma Labs for now. We are scanning stuff for them. We also are having a quite a, a big cooperation with MUFON in the U.S. So um, quite a lot of people are coming to us asking for help and uh, finding help, I should say. And without having to name um, institutions now, but um, are, are, they, are there also academics visiting you from from different universities or um uh, because i like in, in in what i'm doing right now was a um, sort of a problem of finding current academics researching the topic seriously because it's still cast in these um, somewhat negative terms and it's for, for a lot of people it's a career killer in academia unfortunately and so i'm just curious if um academics from from certain institutions actually visit you or if or if they come they yeah kind we of, do have that yeah yeah uh, we had for example uh, historian uh, greg jigian coming to us for uh, two uh, consecutive summers his book is soon being published and he said to us that i didn't have to go anywhere else in the world i, I just went to afu and that was fine uh, so that's nice to hear and right now I'm helping a, I cannot name it, but mm-hmm. it's a university in, in Scandinavia, which are planning some big event, and uh, we will help them with that. Uh, so, yes, there are academians coming to us uh, asking for help. Yeah, I think that's very promising to hear because it's definitely a topic that is so complex that needs scientific and more academic um, attention. So that's that's a very promising trend, I, I gather there. Um, in terms of the, um, so I, I saw a couple of points about the um, AFU. Um, one is the kind of historical depth. Um, how far back do 
do the source of SCO you have in your archive, just broadly? Yeah, well, it's hundreds and hundreds of years back when it comes to mm. articles and uh, excerpts from uh, books and things like that. Uh, when it comes to hard copies, I think we are from the 1600s when it comes to books mostly. Uh, we also acquired uh, uh, the source book, the William Corley's source book project archive a couple of years ago. And that uh, goes back quite a long way as well. Uh, so uh, I can see no limit really because we are always mm-hmm. looking for files. Uh, but most of the hard files are, of course, from, from the 1900s. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's a, a definitely a historical phenomenon as well that may come in different guises, but um, is on on at the, at the baseline probably quite um, quite similar in different centuries. And speaking of the different guises in which the phenomenon comes, I'm very curious about this shift you made at one point from a pure ufological um, uh, research archive to a more um, um, comprehensive paranormal archive. Uh, what sort of internal discussions did you have to to make that shift? Yeah, we had quite a lot of discussions about that. Uh, the idea was from me, really, uh, and the other guys uh, on the board. Um, they could see my point. Even it, it it took a while because we had to change our name, and that was quite sensitive, of course. We uh, could keep the acronym AFU, Archives for the Unexplained, Archives for UFO Research. Uh, But doing that was not easy, of course. Um, But it was the right thing to do. And now everyone is very, very pleased with that. We discussed this with Hilary Evans before he passed away. He was very positive to our change into this. And all researchers we have been dealing with have been seeing this for years and years, that UFOs cannot be dealt with just as a nuts and bolts thing, just uh, isolated from all other strange phenomena. And when you're looking at William Corley's huge sourcebook project, you can see that, wow, there are so many things that we do not understand that happens on this Earth that are just in the outskirts of UFOs and connecting to them in so many ways. So we had a discussion, and uh, now we feel that this was really the the right path to walk. Yeah, and it seems to be confirmed as well by what you said, researchers focusing on folklore and the ideational framework of um, ufology, visiting and using your archive. So um, thank you very much did the right thing there. the second, so thanks, thanks for this um, great overview over the AFU. I'm going to make sure to include all links to, to the website so that listeners can find it. Um, the other um, major topic I wanted to talk a bit about today are ghost droplets because um, I think everyone heard of them. They're kind of associated with um, Scandinavian ufology, um, but um, you are the uh, source of all knowledge when it comes to ghost rockets. So I'd love to um, get a brief overview of what they are 
and um, what their characteristics are. Yeah, I mean, not everyone knows about them, of course, um, but they were one of those phenomena that really got me interested in the 1970s. Uh, I read about them. I read that the Swedish military during 1946 had put quite an effort into finding out what people saw in the skies. And what did they see? The reports were, of course, as many reports about UFOs, lights in the night. But in the, in the, in the daytime, reports were pouring in from all over Sweden and Norway, Finland, and partly of Denmark as well, about cigar-shaped objects with or without wings flying over Sweden and crashing always into lakes. And that was really a mystery for the military. And it's a great mystery to me as well. Because when you look at more than 1,000 UFO reports that the Swedish military had in their files, which we, me and a friend at AFU, Anders Lilligren, were, were, were able to find in the, in the 1980s, you can see that they put a lot of effort into trying to find a solution to the ghost rocket phenomenon. And they were really, really, really puzzled about the crashes. The military sent search teams to several lakes where many people in broad daylight had seen those rocket-like things going down with a splash and a big column of water. They from time to time found indentations at the bottom of the lake. They could see that large stones had been thrown up on the shore. Water lilies were cut off. But they never found a trace of the ghost rocket itself. And, of course, those rockets were very much like the V-bombs, the Nazi Germany's... uh, secret weapon during the last years of of the Second World War. Uh, They were also cigar-shaped, but with wings. And one of them crashed in Sweden in 1944. And that left behind 2,200 kilos of debris. And those ghost rockets never left anything behind. And I I met with many of the researchers, of the military researchers. They were still alive in in the 1980s when we found this. So I traveled around and I interviewed them. I interviewed loads of witnesses as well. All of them are gone now. So, well, I should have done more. But I did as much as I could at that time. And they were all saying the same, that this was a mystery. They should have found something. Because there were whole villages seeing those crafts going down into water. And nothing was there when the military went there trying to find it. So I also talked to a Swedish pilot who in, in, uh, in August 1946 suddenly saw this ghost rocket came, come flying in front of his aircraft. And he said to me that uh, there were no tail fin, there were no wings, there were no cockpit. There were just this maybe 15 meters 
big large uh, cigar flying and he tried to to catch up but he was outflown by it and the ghost rocket flew <clears throat> flew into uh this storm cloud that he had tried to to uh, avoid earlier in the flight but the ghost rocket flew straight into this and he couldn't follow it anymore so he lost it so there were really really good observations there were not just specks of lights in the sky those were seen for half a minute for minutes they were heard they were seen crashing there was the water column was seen and the traces from the crash were seen but the objects were never never found yeah that's indeed very curious um just out of interest um are there that many lakes in sweden or is it um or why why is that the, why are the crash sites always in lakes? Yeah, because I not, never, I never, never pictured Sweden full of <laughs> lakes. To be honest, <laughs> lots of lakes in Sweden. It's um, even more lakes than in Finland. And Finland is known for their lakes. Mm. But uh, nevertheless, there are more land than lakes in Sweden. Yeah, uh, but not a single rocket ever crashed on on land, which I think tells that someone was really aiming for the lakes. It was not uh, haphazardly done. This was something that was planned. And uh, who did plan this and why? We don't know that. That That's also a mystery. Did they ever expect, uh, exhibit any uh, bizarre flight maneuvers like turning at right angles or were they just very fast and flying in one direction and then they crashed into a lake? They could be seen... Uh, changing their trajectory at some point, uh, trying to hit the lake. But most of the time, they were just crashing from above. But that said, uh, the ghost rockets uh, did not stop coming in 1946. They were reported from the whole of 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, and into the 1990s. Nowadays, they are very, very, very hard to find us such observations so but we have observations more recently in the 1990s and 1980s of ghost rocket like uh, entities landing on lakes and sinking and uh, at uh, several of those observations the crafts were seen navigating before landing uh, very very clearly seen trying to hit the water. At one point, one of those crafts turned 180 degrees and landed and sank. And that one we have been trying to find. We have had two expeditions to that lake in oh. the very, very far of Sweden, far north of Sweden. So we have been there twice. It's a very difficult area. It's a natural park. So we must have special permission just to be there doing that. And we cannot move anything. If we are finding something, we cannot bring it up. But we have a radar return that shows us that something is resting in the mud a couple of meters down at the point where the two witnesses in 1980 saw this strange thing landing and sinking. Well, I just imagine it being very frustrating that you can't actually lift it. You know, something is there, but um, you can't, yeah. can't really do anything. Um, is is it is it a deep lake or? 
No, it's only four meters. Uh, but after the four meters of water, there are four meters of mud. And two meters down in the mud, this thing is resting. And we will go back there again with another instrument because now we have just seen it in two dimensions. But we will bring an instrument that can show us in three dimensions so we can see if this really is this this ghost rocket or, or if there's something else. What does the two-dimensional shape look like, the ground plan, so to speak? It's just a really a bulb like this uh, showing that it's a big object resting there. And... Uh, and the rest of the lake, we, we couldn't see things like that. So it could be a reindeer or sinking there, maybe in, in, in the wintertime. But uh, it's, it's large. That's what we can see. And I suppose due to all the mud, um, sending divers down there is a bit futile, right? Because you just wouldn't see anything, so... Yeah, we did send oh. divers down the first expedition mm-hmm. because we didn't know about the mud. Uh, this lake wasn't um, really well known at all. It, was, it wasn't measured. So uh, the divers went down there and it was they could put their arm just through the mud. But, um, of course, it was impossible them, for them to do anything else than that. Yeah. Yeah, ghost rockets are an ongoing mystery, but very fascinating because they're not just lights, they are actually structured craft witnessed by uh, several several witnesses over the years. And um, now you're even looking for, for physical evidence. So it's, uh, it's very fascinating. Um, speaking in terms of the um, physical appearance of UFOs in Scandinavia in general, uh, we have ghost rockets. Are there also any other shapes like typical sources or triangles or is it really only oblong cigar shaped craft that you get no we have everything that anyone else have <clears throat> really we we do have triangles we have orbs we we have classical flying saucers but uh, of course the saucers are very 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 few and has always been uh, chris obeck who is a very very Good writer and a very good researcher. His his uh, latest book, Saucers, tries to show that flying saucers are very, very, very seldom seen. It's been a meme in many ways. It's been something that people are calling things in the sky. I saw a flying saucer, but it could have been just a speck of light or or, or an orb or whatever. So, but we we have everything of that. But what you can see is that in the 1970s, when I started this um, research, people were reporting those very big cigar, not ghost rockets, but more like motherships flying on at low altitude with windows with lights in them. Classical, really classical. That kind of observations we do not get anymore. They are completely vanished we don't have them but in the 70s there were loads of them so that's really strange something happened happened in between there somewhere yeah no thanks a lot for this overview um it's also interesting to hear that in terms of the general shapes it does correspond to what's going on in, in other parts of the world so um but the ghost rockets do seem to appear to be a rather unique Scandinavian phenomenon. So it's um, 
very interesting indeed. Um, as a way to wrap this up, um, class, what do you make of the, um, I feel it's a pertinent question, what, what do you make of the recent developments in the US, in particular David Grush, uh, etc., with the Schumer Amendment being on the table, but also you know, receiving quite a lot of resistance behind the scenes, um, from what I gather. Do you think um, this is something um, that will also have an impact on your work and on the Scandinavian ufology scene, or how is this um, currently received where you work? Yeah, I mean, it, it's much discussed here in Sweden as well, of course. And everyone is wanting to see if David Grush, uh, his uh, sources are, are bona fide. Uh, we haven't heard from his sources yet. I mean, some people in the Congress says that they have talked to them, but uh, ufologists around the world are still waiting for anything more tangible, I should say. We have heard this before, that the big revelation will be, be coming, and we haven't seen it, seen it. So I'm not that hopeful. I think... Uh, if someone really wants to keep this under wraps, they they will do it. Uh, if there are any truth behind what David Grush says, and there are crafts being taken care of within uh, the U.S. military-industrial complex, they want to use it for their own benefits, I think. They do not want to share it with the world. So let's see. Hopefully, we will know more next year uh, but as you mentioned the the, the Schumer amendment is uh, maybe stopped it uh, looks more and more likely that it will be I think and that is very very sad because uh, the Schumer amendment would have made us at least in in some sort of possibility to see proof about what the US really knows about UFOs uh, I hope that part still will be coming through. So we can see some documents, even if we cannot see uh, the hardcore material. But nevertheless, whatever comes out of this, the private UFO organizations like UFO Sweden and AFU will still have a role to play because uh, lots of people will still see things in the sky that don't understand. They will still want to report what they are experiencing. And the US military doesn't want to, to deal with private citizens. And, of course, the Swedish military doesn't want to deal with private citizens either. So we will still be there, even after Grush and the revelations that may be coming. Uh, hopefully they will be coming. I, I hope so. Yeah, indeed. And I'm totally with you that I think it doesn't... Um, discredit the role of um, a civic effort to um, unravel the UFO phenomenon. I think it's um, I think it's still even more important uh, to to do this um, in a in a civic um, context and in, in a public public context. So yeah, I'm totally totally with you there. One thing this is just a personal side note, and my um, listeners do know this. I always find it um, a bit strange that. Um, you know, I think now behind the scenes they're talking about up to 50 craft or so being or materials being harbored by the US. I do find that a bit hard to believe 
given that um, the, the question is quite relevant why there should only why all these craft should come down over US soil or countries that are in direct control um, by or in cooperation with the US. I always find that a bit hard to believe. Um, but nevertheless, this is just my personal opinion. Yeah, I but think that is the, a problem. I think it yeah. is really a problem. Why do they crash as yeah, yeah. many times? Uh, I mean, they have been traveling, presumably from somewhere else, in a very, very high-tech craft, and suddenly they just crash. Yeah. I, I don't get that. But I should say one thing. I don't think that the UFO phenomenon is... Just a phenomenon, it's phenomena, and it's uh, many, many, many answers to it. Just to look for one answer for the ET, I think that narrows our perspective too much. We should look at this much broader, and that is why IFU is also looking at this topic much broader. So um, let's be more open-minded, I should say. I think that's a perfect note to to close on. Thanks so much for your time, Klaas. You've been uh, very generous with your time today. Um, could you um, briefly tell us what you're currently working on and what we can expect? Yeah, just a couple of hours ago, I, I sent uh, my redacted uh, my, my, my uh, manuscript to uh, the printer. And uh, it's been a new book for published in March, I think. So I've been working for that uh, for quite a few months. I'm also working on a documentary called The UFO Mystery, which will be aired on Swedish television in four parts in March. So we've been broad- it will be broadcasted on TV4 in Sweden. So we traveled to the US and filmed, and we've been traveling all over Sweden filming. So it, that will soon be, be finished as well. So that's the two main projects I've been working on and, and still working on. And what is your book on, your new one? Well, that's much about uh, the military, Swedish military, and also about what's happening in the U.S. Uh, lots of observations by radar personnel here in Sweden, by pilots, by military personnel, but also trying to broaden the context, <clears throat> trying to show that the UFOs are not that easily explained as ETs. It could be a much more interesting thing behind the UFOs as far as I see it. Great, that sounds sounds fascinating. If you do give me the publisher and all the other information, I'll make sure to include it in the description of this podcast. And um, obviously, I'll also link to um, the AFU, etc. Klaas, thank you again so much. It's been a real pleasure and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, the very same and good luck with your podcast. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.